Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. Throughout the month of December, the Ringer staff will be releasing their year-end reviews covering the best and worst of 2018 in sports, TV, movies, music, and more. This week on the site, you can read Chris Ryan and Allison Herman on the best TV shows of 2018, and Chase Serrano and Rob Harvilla on the best albums of the year. You can check it all out on TheRinger.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, it's The Mandalorian. It's Andy Greenwald. Is that going to be my intro for the next two years? Yeah. <laughs> We're really squeezing a lot out of this Mandalorian news cycle. I mean, it, 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 the thing is, it's 24-7 Mandalorian season, SZN. <laughs> I'm so fucking mad at this show. What, wait, what? Yeah, I'm Come really in. mad about this show. Talk about it. Because it's supposed to be kind of, so The Mandalorian is this, uh, hey, what's up, guys? Hey, everybody. <laughs> happy, happy, happy Monday. Happy Monday. Um, Andy and I are going to talk a little bit about The Mandalorian uh, for the next <laughs> is, two years. Haven't they just assumed that? We're also going to talk, we have a couple other like news bits to get to. And we're going to finish Little Drummer Girl. We're going to finish Little Drummer Girl. We're also going to start the Romanoffs. Yeah. No, we actually, both of us, we... we Took a dip in the the warm bath of of Matthew Weiner's peak TV. We cherry picked. Yeah, so we're gonna talk a little bit about that. I know that that's very delayed, but I think we can we can draw some observations out of it. We've been talking about Kai's the Mandalorian subscription numbers for two months. Crater. This show may never happen. Can we? St- at what point during our podcast life cycle over the next year will we just be sitting at these mics pitching? Mandalorian spec scripts. Okay, well, let me just tell you what's going on with yeah. the, the fucking... That's all people... The Mandalorian is really screwing it up, man. <laughs> what are you guys doing over there in Disney? Bob. Bob. Should we open the channel to Bob Iger? Mr. Iger. Mm-hmm. Sir, you got my attention, okay? You're mm. going to make the first live-action Star Wars show. You're going to put it on Disney Plus. <laughs> Disney Plus for, for uh, the Euro Disney Americans. Fans, call it. So, you guys got my attention, Bob Iger does with The Mandalorian. Okay. He's right. got John Favreau's executive producing and mm. writing a lot of it. From Taika Waititi of. is involved in it. Like Crazy. all these great directors, they they signed Pedro Pascal to be the star. Oh, I didn't know that. They got fucking Nick Nolte out of out of cryogenic freezing Seriously. to be in this show. And I'm like, God damn, this might be good. And the thing that Andy and I have talked about for six years is how Star Wars is pretty malleable. You know what I mean? Like in your mind, as you grow older, I think you imp- you you kind of imbue it with more adult sensibilities than maybe it actually has when you watch it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like there's lots of really goofy shit in there for kids, mm-hmm. but like in your mind, you're like, oh, this is about a guy. He's like his father has betrayed him, and, and mm-hmm. then like was that the, a Star Wars spoiler? Sister. Mm-hmm. This is like a pretty big thing because we're like, oh, we're excited for the Mandalorian. Maybe it'll be like a PG thirteen, like an edgy assassin yeah. show yeah. set in the far reaches of space. According to Making Star Wars, oh boy, which has then redirected our attention to Star Wars Leaks Reddit. So, this, this by the way, this all a, seems on the up and up. This is not exactly fresh out of Bob Iger's inbox, but it still is something that I'm getting annoyed at just okay. the same. And, you know, I love seeing you and I love talking about The Mandalorian. Because just for the record, people should know the context. When I walked in here today, Chris was waiting at the door <laughs> like, 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 like young yeller. <laughs> He didn't speak to me when he saw me coming. He just turned and sat down. Well, because like, he so, was—he had such a head of steam about I didn't know what. Everybody was coming out to kiss the ring, and I was like, "Let's go! Come on, Kevin Clark and Gallagher, <laughs> fucking beat it!" Making Star Wars, yeah. they call attention to Star Wars leaks Reddit, and 
there is a post in the Reddit that says, and I quote, I guess the Mandalorian encounters a baby on one of his missions that he is supposed to kill. But instead of that, he ends up saving it, and a lot of the rest of the story revolves around their growing relationship and his efforts to keep the child safe and protected. So it's Lone Wolf and Cub, the famous manga. That, that's what they're doing. It's, it's a or, warrior and a baby. Is that, is that a famous, famous manga? Yes. Okay. It's also like the story of Shane and Logan. It's and, Logan. Yeah. yeah it's, okay. It's been done. Yeah. But you know where my brain, straight to manga. But I don't, I, I don't need yes. a baby no. to make me know the stakes, man. Like, I hate bringing babies into this stuff. This, listen, this has been, I guess, I guess we're talking about our relationship since I started a family. <laughs> no, I, I, it's Monday. Let's get into it. You know what I mean, though? Like, I just think that I, this could be a complete red herring, and and mm-hmm. it could be about something else. And I actually can't even really explain, like, what Mandalorians are. I think that's where Boba Fett comes from, mm-hmm. right? But, like, I just, sometimes, like, I'm just like, why do you guys always have to make it so saccharine where it's like, well, nobody would ever understand why anybody would do anything unless it was motivated by protecting a child? My kids love you. You're Uncle Chris to them. <laughs> so they're going to take this hard. But... I generally agree with you. Thank you. I think that it is, it can be done right. Yeah. But very often it is done wrong and it's a very easy, it's a, it, it's a very easy thing in terms of communicating what you want to communicate at this stage before it exists. And then you, all of a sudden you have to execute a show where you've got a baby in every frame, which yeah. is kind of a drag often. Here's a, here's a, a piece of analysis from SlashFilm.com. Okay. So the MacGuffin for the Mandalorian might be a baby. And some photos like it's a fake may baby. even support that concept. Furthermore, the importance of the baby may also have surfaced online, making Star Wars points out the previous mo- rumor they had heard in which the series would focus on restoring the planet Mandalore. What exactly re- that, that means remains to be seen. But perhaps it's possible that this baby could be the key to restoring the once great civilization of warriors. Can I just pitch you a version of it that you would suddenly do a 180 on? <laughs> what if... Nick Nolte is CGIing the baby. Like he's the Irishman. What if it's like it's like this the yes, this extreme Irishman. What if Does it's it, like CGI baby Groot? Okay. But it's Nick Nolte. So it's they Benjamin Button Nick Nolte. But does mm-hmm. is it still Nick Nolte's current voice or any Nick Nolte voice? And his current face. Yeah. On the baby. That's fucking disturbing. Well, yeah. That's what you get when you bring this up with me on a Monday. <laughs> Look, man, I don't know what to tell you. They are going to play it safe. Yeah. This is Disney. This is Star Wars. And not only is it Disney and Star Wars bruised as they are from this weird last cycle they went through with Solo and then, you know, the the, the episode eight yeah. pushback. Last, last Jedi. The, yes. The great I, Redditing. Of I only last go Jedi. by episode numbers. Oh, I see. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. That's yeah. The, like the real heads on Reddit. But just to say, this is also the premiere offering of a brand new TV service, which is kind of the first volley in Disney's 22nd century strategy, right? So putting a baby makes sense because they're literally going to be babying this entire process, which doesn't always result in good work. To your point, though, your very first point, I feel like once again, we are Charlie Brown and they are Lucy in the football with this. Every time we fall for this, and the listeners know how credulous we are here, when you know, when Rogue One is pitched as the Dirty Dozen in, zero space, to 30 in space or a yeah. war movie yeah, or whatever, yeah. 
And you're like, we, and even you, you began this conversation by saying, you know, we always want it to be a, a, a grown-up thing, even though there's some stuff for kids in there. I Googled The Mandalorian, and what Google offered me was, The Mandalorian is an upcoming American space opera. GTFO, <laughs> internet. Okay? Like, everyone is adding this grandeur to it, which, frankly, if the last few years have taught us anything, what gave Star Wars grandeur was the first movie, the score, and the fact that there were only six of them in 40 years. Yeah, It's commerce, baby. And so when you're talking about how are there things for kids in this stuff, they're literally putting a baby in every shot of the show. And you're like, well, maybe it's Rashomon if you squint. It's fucking Star Wars. Well, I can be upset. Thank you, next. Yeah. The reason why also I was bringing that up is because there was just the news that happened last week of Daredevil getting canceled on Netflix. Right. And likely being revived on Disney Plus. Can I? Can I? Can I just put on my Hollywood fixer hat? Sure, man. Blind superhero is good. Should have had more baby. <laughs> I mean, a blind lawyer taking care of a baby in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Yeah. Come on, it's gold. <laughs> What's Greg Evigan doing? Yeah, that was interesting, but also, I mean, interesting, but also not. Like, look, I went on a. Chris Ryan-esque emotional tangent last week Did about you? Aquaman. Oh, yeah, that's right. There was no floor to that. There was no ceiling. There was no structure. I just had a feeling, and I tried it out on Mike. Didn't feel great, but there it, it didn't, was. See, that's, but, I thought it was good, but it, I, I, don't, I don't know if I knew how to react in the moment. But the, well, the, the gist of what I was trying to say was it, it felt to me, looking at these billboards, like the logical endpoint of this era of culture where things exist for reasons that have truly nothing to do with the creative, which yeah. isn't to say that people don't pour their blood, sweat, tears, and imagination into trying to bring them up to creative code. People work really hard on these shows, and, and they should be acknowledged for that. But if you look at the Marvel shows on Netflix from the way they, they were heralded when they were announced and the way they were cast and presented to us at the beginning to the weird nether space that they exist in now, the writing was on the wall, right? Yeah. I mean, a few years ago when this was announced, this was huge news that they were going to be developing not just four individual TV series based on not Marvel's most popular characters, but historically some of, some the more of their— Some grittier ones, yeah. And historically some of their most beloved and creatively exciting characters. Some of the best work in comics was done on these characters because they were kind of off to the side. And net, here was Netflix not only agreeing to bankroll shows based on obscure characters like Jessica Jones and Iron Fist, but like we're going to make them. We're going to make four seasons of each—one season of each of them mm -hmm. plus— a Defender show. It was going to be the MCU, but on television. It all felt very ambitious, sky's the limit. And then Daredevil was pretty good. Jessica Jones was slightly more than pretty good. Um, Luke Cage was pretty good. Iron Fist was terrible. The Defenders, were, you lost me. Yeah. And very quickly, it became clear that it wasn't about the Marvel team's creative uh, opportunity on Netflix because they never connected them really in any way to the films. And as we learned later with the Kevin Feige and um, Mike Perlmutter divide that the Marvel TV arm and the Marvel movie arm kind of hated each other sure. or in completely separate entities. This was really about, much like the way Apple is now, the press release business. This was about Netflix filling hours, making a big splash, and showing it was serious about playing with the big boys. At this point, just a few short years later, everything's changed. Creatively, those shows didn't need to exist or they didn't need to exist at 12, 13 episodes per season. Um, Netflix is the big boy, doesn't need to prove it to anyone, and everyone is retrenching in terms of taking back their own content. So Because Netflix has all that fuck you Buster Scruggs money, so they, they don't need anything to do with Daredevil. <laughs> I mean, 
there's a version of this world where Netflix feels like it is a creative space for them to continue to populate. But once Disney was going to make its own service, everybody knew, Mm -hmm. right? They're going to take their toys back. And and then the bigger the bigger fuck you is Marvel saying, yeah, we're going to make our own stories for TV now, but we're going to have Loki in them. Yeah. We're going to have our movie stars Yeah, we're in actually going to call in all these, like, there's something in Tom Hiddleston's contract and, like, a 37-foot note that's like, by the way, we might one day put you on TV. R.I.P. in humans. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, this is the direction things are going in. So, yeah, I mean, did you—people said that the third season of Daredevil was— Pretty good. You know, my reaction to Dare—I liked the first season of Daredevil a lot. I mm-hmm. liked the first season of Jessica Jones. I think that what happens when those stories get told on television, though, mm-hmm. at this point, in my personal experience, is that they basically, like, get drawn closer to comic books and the experience of reading comic mm-hmm. books, which is kind of like I can go on Jags where I read them a lot, mm-hmm. and then I can just forget that they exist for a year, mm-hmm. you know? And the, the shows themselves, I think— you can't eventize something that you're going to try and pump out pretty regularly. I agree. And I think that's what Marvel does so well, is that they've, MCU has sort of figured out, we're going to put four of these out a year. We're going to have one that's massive, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to have a couple that we're building up, Mm -hmm. and we're going to try and make it feel like you have these four national holidays when a Marvel movie Mm -hmm. comes out. You can't really do that with 50 hours of Marvel TV a year. Here's the thing that I'm, hopeful for. This would get me back on board and get me optimistic in a big way. They announced Daredevil was not continuing on Netflix. Uh, Marvel was very clear in its press release to say that Daredevil's adventures will continue Mm -hmm. in some form or another. What would be cool, and actually fitting for these characters, if they use this opportunity to rethink what it would mean to do a TV show and do a TV show with these characters. Like why not just do a three-episode or a four-episode run or something like that? Yeah, what I mean is... um, Particularly Daredevil. Daredevil is a character that really doesn't make any sense as I'm going to read 500 issues of Daredevil and every week some another villain is going to show up. Um, because Daredevil is this super emo, dramatic character where everything is always life or death. And because of that, Daredevil has been a great vessel for some terrific creators over the years to do their version of Daredevil. Yeah. Frank Miller is obviously the most, cast the biggest shadow, but um, Brian Bendis and Alex Maleev did a great run. And then Mark Wade and Chris Samney did a run recently that was the complete polar opposite of the darkness that had come before. They did a very bright pop Daredevil that was really cool. So, look, everything is just content now. So why couldn't you do, whenever appropriate, every year, every other year, every three years, an eight-episode show Mm -hmm. with Charlie Cox, with this world, but you change the light, you change the context, you change the creators to tell a Daredevil story? That fills the content need. And honestly, it's not that different than making 13 episodes every year. You know, I'm sure Kristen Rinner still wants to do Jessica Jones. Do a miniseries. I Every, whenever you want, you, it's like she has a movie deal. That's the that would be the ideal version of it. But if Disney's starting their own over the top service, they're going to want to build up a library. It's true, but they see the thing that makes me hopeful about that is the fact that they're announcing it with these splashy Scarlet Witch series and Loki series or whatever. Those are not going to be no matter how they no matter how much they Buster Scruggs them and mm-hmm. pretend these are regular TV shows. These are going to be extremely limited quote unquote event series because Tom Hiddleston is not going to agree to do 13 episodes a year sure. for five years. He's shooting like seven or eight months a year. He's clearly kept the door open. It's a great paycheck and a lot of fun for him. I, I just mean that, it, I, I just hope that 
Kevin Feige's team has been very, very smart about how culture has changed and how to market to changing culture and how to master comic book enthusiasm and energy on a large global level. I am the headline, the only headline I'm trying to impart here is I am very happy when the people who are not just making TV, but the people who are marketing it and paying for it are willing to just admit that it's over. Like sure. the old way is over. Yes. We're just making stuff now when we feel like making it, and that's fine. And that fills the bucket of content just as reliably. Maybe, okay, I should rephrase it. Not as reliably, but it fills it, you know? And I think it, I think that's a better way to fill it. That's one headline. What's your headline? HBO orders the outsider drama series based on Stephen King novel starring Bendelson from Jason Bateman. And it's written by Richard Price. Did you incept this project? If Wait, this show can, needs subjects for medical testing, I'm available. Can we just take one step back and say, if any one of these pieces of news <laughs> was the only piece of news, I know. you would be hype AF. Yes. Yeah. It's so this like, is a uh, best-selling Stephen King novel. It is going to be written entirely or written by Richard Price. I mean, come on. And Jack Bender from Mr. Mercedes, but is also, we know, from Lost is working on the it. Great directing producer from Lost. Jason Bateman is going to direct the first two episodes and may guest star. It is about a seemingly straightforward investigation into the gruesome murder of a local boy leads a seasoned cop and an unorthodox investigator to question everything they believe to be real as an insidious supernatural force edges its way to the case. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, 10 episode limited series. I'm 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 pretty Richard Price and Supernatural is kind of now an that interesting being combo. Said, HBO said they announce a lot of stuff that it takes a, a minute to get to the screen. Here's what I would take from this announcement once you're done picking the juiciest cuts off the bone. Here's the gristle that I see it. Your man Rich Stanky. <laughs> Cannot believe that's really his name, but AT&T, I love saying yeah. it. Uh, when AT&T took over Warner Media, including HBO, made a big deal about saying, you know, we're, we have to compete now. We cannot just be this crown jewel of prestige offerings yeah. in Manhattan. We need to program for the whole country, and we need to program for people on their cell phones and everyone everywhere and compete with the biggest, the biggest names like Netflix and mm-hmm. Amazon. That, me- that means the vaunted HBO production pipeline, which is incredibly long and incredibly uh, narrow, mm-hmm. needs to get a lot bigger. They're going to put more shows into production. I believe this, did this suggest a production commitment in the press release? It certainly seems the, to. The, the other aspect of it is, is that this is a deal with MRC, Media Rights Capital, um, who made House of Cards and I, I assume make Ozark too because of the Jason Bateman yes, connection. it's the second collaboration between the two. Um, th- House of Cards from Media Rights Capital was a big pitch that Netflix blew everyone out of the water with to make their mark on the industry and gave it a two-year commitment and basically doubled whatever HBO and the other people who were bidding on it were bidding on it. But they were bidding on it. It seemed for a while, you know, that HBO, because they had a limited production pipeline, when they buy outside of their company, which they do, but when they buy outside of the company, that was more noteworthy. I think this is a this is a nod towards the way things are going. Yeah, I, this I imagine is more they like what Netflix for- and Amazon have been doing, buying these different, like, body, buying Bodyguard or buying that Hugh Grant, uh, Ben Wishaw show. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. Well, not not necessarily because Bodyguard is an international production okay. or co-production. What I mean is, um, like, uh, I'll use I statements like I was taught in my freshman dorm. Um, the Briar Patch pilot comes from uh, Universal Cable Productions as the studio. USA is the network. Both are owned by Comcast, NBC Universal. Yes. So it's buying in-house. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when HBO... 
buys from like uh, the leftovers came from Warner Brothers, for example, right. which was sort of was in the family so to speak. And, okay. and, and I am doing this in the broadest possible terms. I know there are probably fiduciary details that I'm blowing. <laughs> this just seems to me to be a really good opportunity for them because they are, they're open for business, which uh-huh. is what they're, clearly they're indicating. And they and have some people content. here who have worked with them before, like Price, who's worked on The Deuce and worked on The Wire and, and worked on The Night Of. And that's why I'm, that, yeah, that's why I elaborately pointed to you on an auditory medium that no one could pick <laughs> up on. Richard Price is one of their guys. Yeah. Richard Price is classy, is older HBO, um, and bridges the gap. Kind of like the fact that this sounds like the night of, but with a supernatural twist. Mm-hmm. I, I love talking about speculative projects when they are like this, when we are both legitimately excited for the content, but they are also interesting in terms of the, the business or landscape. Um, we're going to get to Romanoffs and Little Drummer Girl, but let's just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Carnival Cruises. If you're listening to us, you probably like to laugh. Maybe not at this show, but as a general activity, that's probably a safe bet. Yeah, that's right. You probably also like stand-up comedy, watching movies on really big screens. Or really small screens. Yeah, that's true. Maybe you like to get on stage and lip-sync to power ballads. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see you do it. Guess what, Chris? You can do all those things when you choose a Carnival Cruise Vacation. From comedy shows at the Punchliner Club to live concerts, IMAX movies, DJ dance parties on deck. There's even a dive-in theater where you can watch movies from a pool. I'm in on that. Carnival has a million options to keep you entertained at sea. A million seems like a lot. It does. I may have rounded up, but it's probably something close to that number. You know, they've also got options for any kind of group, whatever you're into. Families with children, like Chris is super into that. Couples, bachelorette parties. Fans of The Bachelorette? Something for everyone. Because when you choose Carnival, you are choosing fun. Let's be honest, people and podcast listeners. Fun is something we all need more of. Call your travel agent or go to Carnival.com to explore more. Book early and get 20% off your entire cruise. Carnival. Choose fun. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet the Sonos Beam, the smart compact soundbar for your TV, and the newest addition to the easy-to-use home sound system, Man, Beam has really, it's really just jumped up my living room a notch. I love the Sonos Beam. It basically makes me feel like I'm sitting courtside when I'm watching basketball. It makes me feel like I'm sitting at the 50-yard line when I'm watching football. And it just brings movies, whether it's like an intimate drama or a huge blockbuster, to life in my living room. Beam lets you play everything you love, from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more, all with rich sound that fills the room. It just takes one cord to connect Beam to your TV, and the Sonos app walks you through setup step-by-step. Plus, when you connect your Sonos speakers over Wi-Fi, you can put speakers in different rooms and listen to two things at the same time. So my wife, when she's making our famous slightly wet chicken, can listen to NPR while I'm watching, like, you know, Why Liverpool. Put this on her. You made it. I, I suggested it. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. And in order your Sonos beam to start your smart home sound system, that's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. Let's talk about something super exciting like the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6. Now faster and more powerful than ever before, so you can get more done, whether it's from your office, at the airport, or on your couch. You can take the keyboard off and draw on it easily or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop with up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor. You can work how you want to, for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. All right, we're back. Before we get into talking about the Romanoffs very late and Little Drummer Girl right on time, 
I just want to mention that we have a bunch of year-end TV content. Year-end content's going up all week on TheRinger.com. But today was TV day, so Allison and I did a top 10 list for the best shows of the year. And then Andrew and Miles did a really excellent best episodes of the year list that I thought was quite creative and reminded me of a couple of things that I had forgotten about, like the uh, the Brendan Fraser-centric episode of Trust. Oh, that was so good. And the Sissy SpaceX-centric episode of uh, Castle Rock. So there's a bunch of really good nuggets in Andrew and Miles' list. Allison and I did a list of the top 10 shows. Do you have any questions for me about the list? How are you? I'm fine. It was it was a, actually a very easy process. How many of the shows that you chose involved babies? <laughs> in peril or just babies just hanging out? Have you seen The Queer Eye with the baby? Remember how upset you were when my main takeaway from Widows was that finally a heist movie with concern about childcare? Yeah, I wasn't upset. <laughs> I were, thought that was a good detail. You you were you were pissed. <laughs> I don't have anything against kids. I just think they are too <laughs> regularly used to play on people's Heartstrings. Speaking of, mm. I have to go early, and let me tell you why. <laughs> it started with the sniffles, but I'm afraid. Uh, I am curious how you did it this year, because we should probably also say that we each did our own individual top ten yes. lists. And with our, we can say this, right? Yes, yeah. Next week, are we running this? I think so. We had our annual Best in TV episode of The Watch with friend slash nemesis Sam Esmail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recorded it. A lot of good content. So one part Yoda, one part Mandalorian. I don't want to over-promise here, but Sam thinks <laughs> we recorded the greatest episode of The Watch in, in history. D- d- he really does, huh? He really does. Kaya, do you think it was a good episode? It was great. Oh. Sam also is pretty sure Kaya doesn't listen to The Watch. That was his <laughs> other takeaway, with good reason. So I mean, she listens to it live. Is she listening, though? She's definitely listening. She's here and doing a great job. I promise I'm listening. I just feel like there are moments when I can feel the energy from the other half of the room being like, hey, That's me. You That's guys. Guy. <laughs> That's fair. Um, anyway, so we did all that with our list. And I was curious about the list that you made with Allison because it is a— there was a lot of good stuff this year. Mm-hmm. I think there was not a lot of great stuff this year. But there was just a lot of stuff. And my main, my number one question was the thought process behind including non-scripted shows in the top 10 list, which has always been a bugaboo of mine. So Allison and I were really kind of on the same page for this. So it wasn't that hard to come up with the 10. Mm-hmm. I think we both had a, like a long list of about 15 or 20. And then there was a bunch in that 15 or 20 that we both were aware were kind of personal picks rather mm-hmm. than consensus sort of uh, choices. And what are the examples? Uh, for you guys. I would say like McMafia and Collateral for me and right. maybe like BoJack for her or something like that. You know, where we were like, I would really like in my own personal top 10 probably push these towards there. Mm-hmm. Narcos for me was one, you know. But for Allison and I, I think we both knew that we had like five or six that we both felt very strongly about. Mm-hmm. And those and those happened to overlap. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of divided the last four between the two of us as like p- some more personal picks. Yeah. So I can just go through the list Let's really quickly. List. This is on the ringer.com today, and you can find it there along with Andrew and Miles' best episodes list. But we did Killing Eve number one, mm-hmm. Succession number two, Atlanta number three, Little Drummer Girl number four. I mean, that, that's a that's a pretty dynamite top four that, by the way, may contain the same top four mm-hmm. as me. Yeah. In a different order. I think that that's a really good top four. Then you have The Good Fight number five, mm-hmm. which is something that Allison and I both love. Barry number six. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, number seven. Now, is that you? That's Allison. Okay. That's Allison. Although, I do enjoy that show. I mean, I'm very excited to watch that show. Yeah. Uh, Better Call Saul, number eight. 
Howard's End number nine and Queer Eye number 10. I'm just saying, like, if I'd known, if, if, we, if I allowed those rules, mm-hmm. the Queensbury rules or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like anything is, that's on TV yes. can go in here. Top Chef Junior. Would of course, be like it would be. Yeah, yeah. You, super high. You should. You should it, feel free to it, do so. It though. combines two of your passions: children and cooking. Yes, <laughs> I like cooking. But imagine cooking with Can the peril raised up higher because quick children, digression. Children are involved in a crock pot. Yeah. Is it normal for chicken to be like super wet? <laughs> super wet. Yeah. Like I just I made a a chicken a garlic parmesan chicken uh-huh. last night in a crock pot. And it, it do, just is like— Do you do a lot of crock-pot cooking? You know, by it's crock like the pot, fourth time— Are you saying like an Instant Pot or slow cooker? Slow cooker. Okay. Yeah, not the Instant Pot. I've, I've never done slow cooker Instant Pot stuff. You just cut up some potatoes. Yeah. Uh, throw in some the chicken breasts yeah. that you sear. And then at like after six hours, I was like, this is soaking wet. What do you mean soaking? Like, like, like falling to off the fair, bone? To be fair, my wife did put a little bit of vegetable stock in there. But like falling off the bone, or you yeah, mean like or the consistency the of bone, what you made? Like you know how something can get so damp it can kind of lose its taste. It was soupy, mm. soft. Like First of all, I'm a little concerned <laughs> about your health. Second, the only thing that would make this story more exciting is if there was just a three-year-old child unattended in the corner <laughs> the of your baby kitchen. Was in the Insta pot. <laughs> there's just baby just crying. Uh, I'm, no, I, anyway, I, I think you, I think you put too much liquid in the pot. Okay, they, I, th- that is what I kind of felt. But my wife and I both were like, these potatoes look like they're just going to be like tennis balls. If we should don't. I visit her in the hospital immediately after we record, or should I <laughs> call first? That's right. Anyway, TV can be anything you want it to be. I wanted to put Survivor on this list. Survivor is having an astonishing season this mm. season. But, you know, I was really happy with this list, and it was a really nice moment where you can kind of, like, there is a little bit of consensus this year. I thought that that, mm. I, I agree mm-hmm. with you that maybe there aren't two or three knockdown, dragout masterpieces that we're going to remember for 30 years. But uh, I think that there was some really, really, really great TV and I thought it was cool that we kind of settled on. It, it can be boring to have everybody have the f- same five picks, but I think it does suggest that there's maybe more consensus out there than we sometimes give it credit for. I think the other thing, and this came up a lot in our conversation with Sam, so I won't step on it, but what is exciting about this list for me and about my own list in TV is that it does feel like, for the most part, we're picking shows that are on the on the up. Uh, Mm-hmm. That are ascending yeah. shows. Oh, for sure. This isn't. There were a couple years when I was making this for Grandland, certainly, and even when we were just doing this the last few years. There were legacy spots. Mm-hmm. We were holding spots for shows that legitimately were still great, whether they were Game of Thrones or Veep, um, things that just were of a very high level. Um, those shows didn't air this year. Those particular shows that I just mentioned, but in general, you know, there's a very good chance that Barry's. And Killing Eve's best and Succession's best days are ahead of them. Certainly, I sure. wouldn't bet against Atlanta either. It's funny. I mean, The Good Fight is a, from what I understand, it apparently is a fresh version of what had been a long-running show yeah. or iteration of it. And Better Call Saul is just its own perfect little I would actually box. pair Good Fight and Better Call Saul as just like awarding TV excellence. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily going to change the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to imagine it minting a new star, although I hope Ray Seahorn becomes one. But both of those shows just are excellent at what they do on a level that not enough television is. The dude who plays Lalo feels like a star to me, too. Yeah. I'm sure he's worked a lot, too, but he really popped on the show. I, I think that we should segue, and I, I'm going to try to do this, but I think it's relevant to talking about the year in TV list, which is to try to wrap our arms to some degree around Little Drummer Girl a show that we have now finished and we're going to talk about and that we adored, and the Romanoffs, a show that we struggled with 
that has now finished airing mm-hmm. that I feel like we have mixed feelings about. I'll say this. Both are extremely 2018 TV. A minute ago, you said TV is anything you want it to be. It's not so much that it's hard to imagine these two shows existing in the same televised universe on our endless buffet of choices, mm-hmm. because that is possible. It's more that try explaining either of these projects <laughs> to anyone, yeah. let alone ourselves, not 10 years ago, set with the beginning of Grandland, seven years ago. It's just almost impossible to understand. Little Drummer Girl being this just masterful, not quite a movie, but with all of the details and the sumptuous production design and performance and artistry that I associate with mm-hmm. movies and with cinema, and a finite thing, I think, hopefully, and for, with good reason. And the Romanoffs, which is just feels like if the the moment, this prestige moment that we had turned into a, a prestige hour and then a prestige week and then a month, this is like, sorry, this is going to be a thing that, this is going to hit two things you don't like, cartoons and kids, but... <laughs> You, you remember uh, there was a Pixar movie called Wall-E, and the opening of it was just like the end stage of humanity, just yeah. flowing. Like, yeah, yeah. Honestly, and I say this with respect, the Romanoffs feels like the bloated end stage of prestige TV to me. In that, I cannot believe he got away with it. I'm so glad that he did, but it didn't result in something that I would either categorize as TV or even like must see. Full stop. Yeah, it's his. Uh... Yeah, I was going to say it's his Amnesiac, but I actually kind of like that album by Radiohead. <laughs> it's the idea that he, like, kind of, like, metaphorically, of course, went off into the desert and took psychedelics for six years and then made, like, this triple album. And everybody was like, hey, man, are you okay? Like, that's how I felt when I was watching it. I was just, like, it was, like, the equivalent of kind of a flex, but okay, like, the entire show. See, I disagree with that analogy because psychedelics suggest that he stepped back and came back with visions. And what this felt like to me was imagine a television career as Mount Everest. Uh-huh. And at the bottom, there's teeming hordes, and it's like, you know— Base you're, camp. You're, but even before base camp, you're just in—you're just—here you are, you're in Nepal. There yeah. are people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's street Sher- vendors. It's loud, yeah. clattering. And you find people who are going to help you, and you need them to help you, and you start your ascent. And only certain people make it with you to the first stop and the second stop. And they're helping you, and they're pushing you along the way, and they're giving you oxygen or water, showing you how it's done. And then by the time you've reached, you've passed the cloud line, and you're at the very top, and oxygen is thin. And you look around, and there is nobody left to tell you what to do or what they think of what you do. Yeah. That's what the show feels like to me. <laughs> That's great imagery. Thank do, you. Do you think about it right now? Yes. Wow. You're yes. great at podcasting. Yes, and I'm an improv <laughs> master. But, you know, this was what, this is the end result of what happened. So, I, okay, look, we just decided, I guess, we're going to talk Romanoffs first and then stick around if you have watched Little Drummer Girl to the end because we'll talk about the end. You definitely haven't watched Romanoffs to the end. No. I haven't, but no, like, no, nobody has. Nobody has, yeah. I don't think. And I, I and I this is the end result of what happens when you empower auteurist creators past the point of checks and balances, which is fine, by the way. So is Twin Peaks the return, you know, and I think that's a masterpiece. Yes. So, so, so I, is Alfonso Cuaron's Roma and and to some extent, I mean yes. I think that I think that Little Drummer Girl does. Yeah. Well, actually, I bet they have like way more checks and balances. I, I am not here to have my, even though I'm negative about a bunch of the aspects of the show, I'm not here to say, take these opportunities away from from him or from people like him. Sure. Um, just saying, this is the this is the high stakes baccarat table you're playing at, where you either win big or you end up with this, honestly bizarre series. So to take the full step back, this was pitched as a kind of 
you know, a tonally serialized maybe or very lightly serialized con- set of connecting short stories, essentially. It felt very much like a collection of short stories. Um, where the only abiding conceit is that a character, um, multiple characters, claim to be descendants of the Romanovs, the last ruling family of uh, Tsarist Russia. Mm-hmm. Am I getting that right? And really, after having seen it, it just seems like an exercise, as you said, in short stories. There are some topics that interested Matthew Weiner, particularly there were some locations that interested him that got a lot more interesting once he saw the budget numbers Amazon was willing to give him, probably. And he went off and did it. And I say this with great affection, that this if, if you ever saw like late period Woody Allen films and you were like, if only there were eight more hours of this vibe. Yeah. Boy, do I have a TV show for you. Yeah. That's the thing that the, I could not the, get out of my the, mind when the, I was watching it. The flip side of that is, look, one of the hallmarks of, and look, we, we are having a conversation. We're not having a political conversation. I hope that's okay with people about the artistic merits of Woody Allen or Matthew Weiner, who is also was uh, accused of sexual misconduct by Cater Gordon. That's an issue we've talked about on this podcast, mm-hmm. and maybe we will again. But I just wanted to say that like, one of the hallmarks of the Romanoffs and the last 30 years of Woody Allen movies is there are... They're, mar- they're, they're populated by incredibly bourgeois people having conversations about incredibly enormous yet somehow still abstract notions, mm-hmm. the nature of humanity, of what we owe each other, of love, affection, childhood, marriage, sex, all of it. Having conversations usually like at Bergdorf Goodman's or whatever. Mm-hmm. This show goes to places in each episode. It's about stuff. Yeah, I skimmed, th- I skimmed through a couple and found one that I, I quite liked a, a bunch uh, two I, that I, I liked. Well. I, I I really enjoyed uh, House of Special Purpose, the the uh, Christine Hendricks one, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed End of the Line, which starts Jay Ferguson and and Catherine Hahn. So let's the other ones I felt honestly like itchy watching and wanted to like turn off. Yes, I was. I, I I'll call attention to the Amanda Pete episode, the name of which I don't remember. Um, I, I mean, I I found it. I watched it. Mm-hmm. I found it very hard to watch. It doesn't help that these episodes are like on average like eighty five minutes long, mm-hmm. um, and feel like it. But they are sumptuous and they're beautiful with great actors. Um, End of the line was the one that interested me the most. Also, part because well, also I would say that deep in end of the line, we don't even have to get. I I think what the way you're drawing the pulling these two shows together is really interesting because it's when tourism goes right and when tourism goes wrong. And Little Drummer Girl, they allowed Park Chan-wook to execute a very specific vision with material that a lot of people feel a lot of either intellectual or actual financial ownership over. Mm-hmm. And in in the Romanoffs, this is entirely Matthew Weiner's creation. Um, I mean, he, he he directed every episode. He has mm-hmm. the screenwriting credit on every one, although there's there's co-writers on them. No, he had no credit on End of the Line. He, I mean, he collaborated with, oh. with his... Madman crew. So oh. the Amanda Pete episode is credited to Semi Chellis, who is a playwright who was was on many seasons of Mad Men. The Jacques Matons, the married couple, whose experiences with international adoption informed the plot of, End of the line, were the only credited writers of that episode. Okay. Weiner definitely did not put his name on those. I don't know whether that's in response to you know the controversy from Mad Men, where criticism like that he was crediting for, himself as the single writer, even though so there were people who were also working on it. More than that, it's that he. Traditionally, showrunners have their hand in every episode of mm-hmm. everything, um, often rewriting things substantially. His feeling was, uh, and he was upfront about this, that if he if he felt that he wrote or, or rewrote more than fifty percent of a script, he would put his name on it. Yeah. Um, and then the comparison I often used was Dan Harmon on Community, very different person, very different show. I think 
got credited, got sole credit or even just writing credit for two episodes out of the 60 plus they made. Yeah. Clearly he did more than that. Yeah. But that was his way. That's That was his style of doing it. Anyway. I would say the end of the line, the, the one thing I wanted to say about end of the line, and it comes very deep. It's like watching like, you know, you have to watch the entire baseball playoffs. And I told you there was like three good innings, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But deep in the end of the line is a scene between Catherine Hahn and Jay Ferguson that is why Matthew Weiner is a really good writer. It's this argument that these two characters have about whether or not they're going to adopt this Russian baby. And it has that incredible facility with intimate moments between two people that turn into that, – that are able to exist in that room, just the two of them fighting or, or trying to get along or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But – feels much, much bigger, you know, and he was really good at that on Mad Men. He was really good at having a Don and Peggy conversation that was just electric right there on the screen and then felt like the ripple effects were going out throughout history, throughout sociocultural divides. And I did feel that way by the end of the line. You know, it's kind of a slog. It's, it's way too long and, and, but it's got the two best performances I thought in the whole show that I saw and I got what it was about. Like it felt like a very tight, short story. You know what I mean? It made sense to me. It also went there. And when I say went there, I mean, the show was shot on location to glorious effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could feel in the Amanda Peet episode, it's shot just just blatantly on the streets of the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And that definitely feels like a kind of a wonderful fuck you because Mad Men, you know, shot in LA on sound stages and they never went outside. Yeah. The end of the line episode is shot in the deepest, darkest cold of Romanian winter, doubling for, for Vladivostok in Russia. Mm-hmm. And they're there. And Annette Mahendru, who's wonderful in The Americans, is pretty wonderful in this episode, too. It's very evocative of place, which is really important. But I was just going to say to your other point, and, and I should also put at the top here, so Jay Ferguson is the star of this episode. Jay Ferguson is one of the stars of Briar Patch. Despite his avowed Cowboys fandom, he is otherwise a wonderful guy. It's a guy. miracle that I'm even complimenting him. Once I found that out about him, I was just like— The, the, the things that he has done and said to too me— too bad I have to fry Briar Patch if it, I ever see it. I, I informed him that should his team continue to do well, his character will be kicked into the sun in the upcoming episode. <laughs> he seems okay with that. Um so obviously I'm, I'm biased about that, and I think he just shows what a tremendous actor he is in this episode. But I wonder, people, and this is a David Chase syndrome too, and it's interesting to me that Weiner and David Chase work together so well in The Sopranos. And people, and I believe he has either said or people have implied that the that's what the money is for speech. People look at that and they think of like the writers working for Weiner being the Peggy and Weiner being the Don Draper. Mm-hmm. I believe that when Weiner wrote it, and Weiner wrote Mad Men, I think he has said this, he is often felt more akin to Peggy and that David Chase is Don Draper mm-hmm. to him. And that's what that episode was about. But anyway, both of them kind of, both of them made one of the great television shows of all time each and both kind of d- struggle with their relationship to the medium and want to shake free of it. Weiner's written a novel. He's directed films. He made this show, which is kind of anti-old TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partly because the other thing they have in common in addition to their talent is they both came up in a more frustrating TV atmosphere. Uh, Chase famously worked on, like, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Sure. He did all these years in the trenches. Weiner was on staff on CBS sitcoms like Becker. Um, but I do think that what we're seeing with this show is when you decouple key parts of television from other parts, what do you have? Meaning, 
what you talked about the strength of Mad Men and the arguments in Mad Men being part of history, but they were also part of the show's internal history. Sure. And there was an office comedy happening, and there was week-to-week serialized storylines so that when they then, then stepped back and suddenly, oh, shit, they're actually talking about women's lib, or they're actually talking about race relations or power in a deep way that is global and universal, it was in concert with the, the, the macro was in concert with the micro. Yeah. Whereas this is a show without any serialized momentum. I mean, John Slattery nominally appearing twice as the same person doesn't count. Um, it's just macro. Yeah. And it doesn't land on the emotional level that it would have had we been following, say, those characters from End of the Line before their story and after. Do you think there's Romanoff season two coming? I thought that that was announced. It was? I, was it announced? I thought that there was a suggestion that there might be one. Now, I didn't watch the last episode. Is there? Is, the, is it a cliffhanger? I haven't seen the last episode either. What if there was a cliffhanger? <laughs> the Romanoff's expanded universe. Let's do Drummer Girl really fast, though. I'd love to. So I was very curious because I know that, you know, we'd sort of done our, our homage to this show based on the first three episodes. And then the second three episodes are, I mean, in some ways, like, kind of like even more dialed into like my, my personal interests because yes. when Charles Dance shows up. Oh my God. <laughs> Charles Dance, uh, many of you know from Game of Thrones, is, is an incredible British actor, shows up as like an MI5 guy. A very Le Carre figure. Yes, and who is essentially playing, you know, puppet master on the puppet masters in this in these last couple episodes. When those moments between him and Michael Shannon are happening, I was like, if you guys want to take, you guys want to make Romanoffs out of these two fucking guys, if you want ni- nine hours of my time for just this conversation, by all means. What if they had a, a ripcord? What if at the end of the series, Michael Shannon turns to camera and like that famous documentary about the joke, it just goes, the Romanoffs. <laughs> and it's all connected. That's right. It's all connected. What is what is Charles Dance's line that I have to imagine is from the book where he's basically like, it's fine if you want to, piss on my leg and say that it's raining, but don't, like, take a giant, like, Chris's Crock-Pot <laughs> dump on my leg and not even have the courtesy to give me the weather report. Yes. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, what did you think of the the sort of... I, I think that the thing that people had... Uh, the, people probably had, like, a, an issue with, like, the premise. You know, that it was a little bit convoluted or that it was difficult to understand, like, why do they have to do this public kind of It's extremely cerebral. Yeah. yeah. This is a novel. And it played in some ways as a novel on TV because it is asking you to buy in, which is why it is so well suited to a visionary director who's controlling the color scheme of every frame of Mm -hmm. every moment. Yeah. Because you have to buy in. You have to just accept that this is an exercise in a way. And and the emotion is going to come, in some ways, it's going to come from it that, okay, this is all theater. And we have to understand that this is all theater and this is all performance. So you can't really get caught up in, I mean, at the end, did I have a moment where I was like, why would the English let them blow up a university to prove a point? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a tough sell if you go down that road. But look, you again, you've bought a ticket and you're on the ride and I hope you've enjoyed it. Like, you've also previously been okay with the fact that when Charlie and uh, uh, Gotti consummate their relationship, I believe one of their heads comes out of the other one's mouth. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, I guess that was a pretty pretty good time for them if that's what was happening. I found the second half of this, this show mesmerizing. I just thought all the Khalil stuff was just mesmerizing. Harif Gattas is the actor. Tremendous. I also want to shout out the guy who plays the military commander in Lebanon who just creates an entire character and performance by staring Uh at Florence Pugh. The stillness is so outstanding. I mean, look, do I have questions about what you can really do in a month? Because for a month, I've forgotten to buy new dish soap for my home. Uh In a month, she was turned into a credible international terrorist. 
I mean, I got you got to respect the accelerated coursework. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to respect the hustle on that. Also, side question that came out of this: I love I love the team. I loved the Mossad Mrs. Bach team. Just all yeah, the small Shimon, characters yeah. that made the made full characters out of the piecemeal that they were given just to work popsicles with. and stuff. But you know, they spent a lot of time together. Now I know that when like you guys were starting up the Ringer, it was like just four of you and Bill, and you were in a house. But like presumably you chose a house and not a camper van for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, yes. This, it probably would have been difficult if we were working out of a van, but it was the 70s. But what if your job, I know, again, it was the 70s, you didn't have like websites to hit refresh on, but if your job was to be in a van with these people and just watch a blinking light on a screen Yeah, and eat fast food month, and smoke. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would get raw real fast. It really would. I'm making jokes when I just want to say, I do think this show is a masterpiece because in its construction and its execution start to finish, it was only ever one thing. And sometimes in this era of event series, I've found shows begin with a way that make you feel like, oh, this is as good as movies can be. This is trying a different type of storytelling. And then you feel it fritter away. You feel the control fritter away, whether maybe one person didn't direct the whole thing. Right. Or maybe there was mixed messages as to what they were doing, what they were adapting. Maybe you feel the show start to hedge its bets. Oh, maybe we could turn this into a second season if we do X, Y, or Z. This was a completely controlled exercise from beginning to end in a way that felt so exciting to be a part of. There are moments that, again, I imagine come from the Lacare, but are played so well on screen. In the end game, at the very mm-hmm. end, when Khalil notices the milkman hasn't been there, and Charlie's like offering possibilities. She's trying to be like, yeah, well, what if he's late? And, she, and he turns to her without any other reaction, says, why are you trying to comfort me? Yeah. That is a level of psychological uh, That's insight That's that is Lacare. Pure Lacare. Yeah. How human beings act. Yeah. And we've seen that happen. We've probably done this in our own lives. But just have it spelled out and then performed in a way that makes you think about how with you are stakes. with people. With those stakes. But with those stakes, mm-hmm. it's pretty thrilling. Yeah, the whole battery thing is just like, tell me, Gadi. <laughs> We're going to wrap when, it up there. Has she turned? Has <laughs> she turned, Gadi? <laughs> and then we'll be back on Thursday to talk about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's Maisel season! Thanks for coming by, Andy. Appreciate your presence. You know, I, I, I was glad I made time today, uh-huh. but if you could talk to my people about Thursday before you just announce it on the mic next time, I'd, <laughs> I'd appreciate that. iCal is your friend, Bransky's. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Carnival Cruises. If you love this episode of The Watch, you're probably the kind of person who chooses fun. And when you cruise with Carnival, there's more of your favorite kinds of fun on board than any other vacation. Fact. From live comedy to live theater to lip sync battles, IMAX, even a dive in theater where you can watch movies from the pool in the middle of the sea, which I must say sounds better than watching it from the middle seat on a cross-country flight like I usually do. They have it all on Carnival. Call your travel agent or go to Carnival.com to explore more. Book early and get 20% off your entire cruise Carnival. Choose fun. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you fill the room with rich sounds of everything you love, from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more. This holiday season, I shall commence my annual viewing of Die Hard. And I cannot wait to watch the Nakatomi Plaza 
come to life and I suppose there, there's quite a bit of death in it mm. but the holiday season is alive in the Nakatomi Plaza and it's going to come even more to life with the Sonos Beam I also think that if I had somebody in my life that I loved a lot or even just a little bit I might be thinking about getting them some Sonos stuff for the holidays I think that'd be a great gift looking at you Andy go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system 